everyone and welcome back to Rupture Radio. This week we have a timely discussion with Bill Ralston and Robbie McVeigh, authors of Anish Er Hochdon Tauri, Ireland, Colonialism and the Unfinished Revolution. We go through the nature and history of Irish colonialism, the resurgence of post-colonial thought, the nature of the two statelets North and South, and questions of identity. Joining me on this interview is friend of the show and writer Chris Bosang. Linked below is a review of the book which Chris wrote for Liberated Texts. Before I go to the interview, I want to plug that Rupture Issue 8 is due out next week and we will be hosting a launch event at Conley Books with some discussion around the theme of imperialism. The event will take place this Friday the 16th of September at 7pm. It would be great to see a few listeners there, and so I've put a link to the event in the episode description. A link to the magazine can also be found below. Hopefully see some of you there, and I'll switch over to the interview now. So to begin, you both might just introduce yourselves and give a sense of your backgrounds. I'm, I'm a researcher who focuses, I guess, on uh, quality and human rights issues. My background is that I'm a Protestant from the North. Um, and uh, I now live in Edinburgh, so I've, uh, I'm, I'm part of the diaspora as well. So put all, all that together and you get some sense of where I'm coming from. And uh, I'm a non-Protestant from the North. Uh, <laughs> I spent my whole working career as a, as a lecturer and professor in Ulster University in sociology and in the final part of my career as director of the Transitional Justice Institute. And um, Robbie and I have known each other a lot of years. In fact, we've I should have put it, we've done a number of, of writing pieces together, which are few and far between, but the quality is exceptional. Uh-huh. Well, we'd have to agree. So <laughs> thanks a million for joining us anyway. But before we get into the meat of the book, I was just wondering if you want to outline what motivated you to write the book. As I mentioned before the interview, I tend to think it's fairly unique in its scope and in the content. So I'm interested in how that came together. Yeah, I think if you were right back to the, 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 there was a point where I remember starting to talk about it, and that's where there was some discussion in the north really in the wake of the, the the agreement and the kind of community relations dynamic that is so dominant there where there was this discussion around the a celebration and it was precisely presented in that way a celebration of the, the the plantation as part of uh, uh part of cultural traditions work and at that point um you know we were just saying there's something odd about this there's something strange about it you wouldn't expect Native Americans to to celebrate plantation. You wouldn't expect anyone who was colonized to celebrate uh, their colonization precisely this way. So it was a it was an odd moment when you when we felt something should be should be done to at least protest and contest that that that, that notion. Then for a long time, I think we felt that that that, that simmered, and we felt that uh, we were playing a, a fairly lonely furrow in the sense that it was almost uh, old fashioned to talk about. Uh, colonialism in the, in the Irish context, um, but we got on with doing the book because we thought it was important to at least kind of present that position. Uh, and then I, I suppose in the in the process of of, of finishing the book, uh, a couple of things changed. The first was, uh, you know, Brexit happened and completely changed the dynamic in Ireland, the discussion around the border and things like that, and and, and opened up to the, the discussions around reunification again. And then obviously uh, COVID and then Black Lives Matter overlaid that i'll just come in on that that then to say that um there 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 was a bit of a backstory to this as well and that i i jokingly said at the start there that robbie and i had done a few things together over the years and like for example we did this this piece with a sort of tongue-in-cheek title called civilizing the irish looking at 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 the role of british colonialism through the years uh and and the different stages in which it, it othered the irish racialized the irish and then how it dealt with that. So, so we, we had form, let's say, before we started thinking of this grand project. Uh, the other thing to say about the grand project is that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was paid as an academic all my career and, and Robbie is academic, if not paid as an academic, if you know what I mean. And, um, and we, we knew also that it was not, it, it was a very minor key in any writing about the North, or indeed about the whole of the island, but especially the North, to talk about colonialism at all. That even historians uh, who wrote about colonialism tended to write about it as something that was back then. And certainly most political commentators and politicians and media people 
who who said anything at all about the north would have run a mile from from the suggestion that there was a colonial frame to put on what was happening so Robbie was talking about that lonely furrow that that was the situation in which we started that book but as he said there too in just a few years that has been turned around you know there's hardly a day goes by now where somebody isn't talking about colonialism in respect to things on this island or indeed things on other islands and other parts of the world so we um we were lucky enough to to catch the wave as it as it grew in in both of what you've said you've kind of given you've given indications of what important events you think catalyzed this this change from the lonely furrow into a more lively kind of public discussion i was interested in maybe if you had any more ideas onto what other events could be said to have brought us to this position where colonialism and empire are in more common circulation and also how you think what your impressions are of this conversation as it's currently unfolding amongst commentators, journalists and politicians in Ireland. Well, the, the title of the book is Anissar Haktan Tauri and, and you know the connection to, to uh, Orosha de Vahawalya and, and, and to Paduk Pierce and everything else. So, so there's all sorts of levels at which that, that title works. But one, one level that we quite deliberately wanted to work at is to say, hundred odd years ago there, there, there was uh, there, there was a summer coming if you look at the turn of the 20th century uh, with the feminists the the uh, the Republicans the nationalists the trade unionists poets others all sort of coming together not necessarily agreeing uh, on 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 a range of things but agreeing enough to want to have a new Ireland a republic uh, uh, something that was not colonized anymore. And we felt that, you know, 100 plus years on, we were entering another phase like that, right? And I think that although we thought that from the start, the evidence has grown with every passing month that that is what is happening because of the sorts of things that Robbie was talking about, like Brexit, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's formal things like um, Ireland's future and the and and the role that they are on at the moment with their 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 the roadshow going around the island north and south and and lots of other little things to say that there is a coming together there are people appearing on platforms together to put at that very simple level talking about the possibility of reunicate reunification or at least what re, would reunification look like if it got that far which you could not have imagined well certainly not 10 years ago but probably probably not even five years ago so we feel that the summer is coming and that's why the title of the book is what it is. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only thing I would add to that is that I, I mean, clearly it is located the, in the sense that the, the, the discussion is, is happening around the world is located in that uh, Black Lives Matter moment. There's no question about that. But I think for us, the, the interesting bit is that, that that was the moment where a lot of Irish people said, ask the question, how do we connect with this? And of course, our book is trying to to, to answer that question. So it's not really surprising that, that, that some people have, have found it useful in that, in that context. But I suppose what, is, what, what, what was less expected is that in terms of the international audience we have, if that's not too grand a, a, a term, there's actually a, a genuine interest coming out of people who are engaging those questions all around the world in, in the Irish model and what happened in Ireland. And that, that, that maybe is less by us, less expected than we thought because it's it's still not necessarily an easy conversation to have in Ireland, north or south of the border, but there's lots of people here around the world who, when they begin to talk about colonialism and and what and, and, and ongoing legacies of colonialism, still look to Ireland as one of the key key models to help them understand both the both the process of colonialism and the politics of of, of anti-colonialism, and that you know that, that has been somewhat surprising, I think, but it, it's absolutely real as well that that. That, that 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 sense that Ireland matters to the rest of the world is is absolutely true, and and I think that's great, Robbie. Because I mean, at, at the West Belfast Festival, Phil and Fobble there last month, uh, there was an event with a guy called Dennis Brownlee, who set up this organisation. He's African American, set up this organisation looking at the links between African American history and politics in Ireland, because he he argues that thirty eight percent of African Americans say they have some Irish blood in them, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, there was a debate during his talk about the ambivalence of African-Americans towards Irish-Americans, as, as you might imagine, without going into all the details, you know. So on the one hand, they've got 
you know, everybody like uh, Dubois and, and Marcus Garvey and everybody looking up to the Irish and the Irish Revolution. And on the other hand, uh, you know, there was the, 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 the evidence of their eyes of racist Irish-American cops beating them and things like that, you know. But what one of, one of the things that I think is wonderful about the book is we, we have some sense that there's now a feeling among readers that are reading the book in the United States, especially black readers in the United States, feel happy to include Ireland again, right? Despite the racist cops and everything else, happy to include Ireland in that debate about colonialism. Yeah, and I think the book really traces Irish colonialism. And in interviews, you've talked about the importance of early modern Ireland as the starting point for developing an understanding of colonialism. So I guess following that, what was the nature of the original plantations and how did they act as that initial laboratory for the transformation of social relations and imperialism? And what role did that play in future uh, imperial ventures around the world? So that's a short week question. <laughs> Uh, well, and we, we make it longer because we, we, we situated the beginning, even earlier than most people, like uh, 1169 is usually when people say, but we, we did it back to 1155 with the, with the, the, the people bill that first uh, made it clear that England should expect to have a right to interfere in Ireland. And really, you know, that, 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 that established a principle which still ha hasn't gone away. So in that sense, you know, the, the one thing that is most striking, if you like, about Ireland's adventure with or through colonialism is just the longevity of the whole thing. It's been it's been so long. It's been such a long process. Now, of course, you know there, there's whether whether you want to claim you're the the, the first colony or not is a is a you know it's a it's a, 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 a an unwanted uh, probably an, an unwanted uh, uh, sobriquet. But but the, the reality is that whether or not Ireland was the first colony, it it has been colonized for. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and over that period, you know, there've been different tendencies within colonialism. But the one thing that it, that it has has obtained is the is the, 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 the colonial process itself. Now, when you begin to break that down, you see two core elements. I think, or two two tendencies within the colonial process. And the first is one of administrative colonialism, like what the British did in India, where you go in and you squeeze an existing social system, you you tax it, you exploit it. But you, you 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 leave it more or less in place in terms of the the, the the existing social system, or the other one, which is plantation, where you go in and you completely try to uh, transform the the society which you're which you're colonizing. You know the the Cromwellian model of which was you know identified as a clean slate. So it's it's uh, and it carries with it obviously an implication of. of uh, of, of genocide, it's about removing the existing social system and replacing it with some something completely different. That's the the essence of plantation. So when you if you look at Ireland and, and the terms of the tension between those two models, are both used simultaneously at different times, but usually one one or other is dominant, and you see different periods of Irish history where where where, where one is more important, but they're uh, in, in combination they 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 they, they create a uh, you know, a, 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 a system which uh, endures over hundreds of years and absolutely defines Irish life over that period. And the thing, to, the thing I'd add, Jim, is, is to say that, you know, uh, colonialism is violent uh, and, and, and very, very, very obviously violent at certain times. And it doesn't mean that, for example, it's violent at one stage and then it uses a more sort of uh, subtle uh, policy like plantation which is a violence in itself, but maybe not as military. Uh, the, the things can go side by side. They're two sides of a coin. Uh, if you look at this specific case of Ireland and you look at Elizabeth's reign, you know, coming up to the end of the 1580s, 1590s, you get courtier after courtier, you know, the spokesperson after spokesperson around the Queen uh, writing these pamphlets, bewailing the fact that even though they have had a, a foot in Ireland, since 11 whatever they still haven't conquered the bloody place and so they've got to get this conquest over once and for all and there were arguments that ensued and the two arguments basically were should we should we basically wipe them out and show them who's boss or should we do something else and sometimes people had those two arguments joined in certain terms of saying well look let's sort of half wipe them out and then use the other policy. And if you look at, the, at, at, at how the plantations came about, they came, at, they came at the end of a period where England threw 
everything it could at pacifying Ireland, and it's particularly pacifying Ulster, which as one pamphleteer at the time said, was the very foster mother of all rebellion in Ireland, right? So it was a matter of smashing Ulster. And they spent, the Elizabethans spent in a three-year period, two million pounds in current and in, 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 in money of the time, two million pounds to try to sort out Ulster and sort out the conquest. To put it in, con in context, that's more than they were spending in fighting the Spanish at the time, including, including the Armada. So once that had succeeded, once the, the earls had flown, once these other things had happened, then the door was open for the other side of this policy, which was plantation. So clear the land, we won't get much opposition, clear the land, put in, put in planters and create a little England right on our western side. I think it was in the Cosmonaut interview where you mentioned that one subject you might want to tackle in the event that you do another project is um, writing a book on early modern art and that would be that would be kind of the, the follow-up. What is it about this period that makes it of particular interest to you and you know, without asking you to give too much away before the thing is even begun, or you've even worked up the wheel, I'd be interested to hear what other threads would you think about re-engaging? What, what else remains to be said, honestly, you think? Robbie, are you thinking or are you? Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about it. I'm deferring to me. <laughs> I'm, de I'm deferring to you. I'm thinking. <laughs> well, look, I, I don't remember making that promise, by the way. But uh, sure, why not? Look, I, I think I think the thing is very important. I mean, it's it's a well a well researched period. You know, the likes of of uh, Nicholas Canning and 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 Jane Allmeyer and various others have really looked at this really, really well. So there's there's a lot there, but there's still so much more, I think, to delve into it. Like I, I was reading something just yesterday and despite all the reading that was done, that, that we did, I didn't realize that there was one, I can't remember who it was, but one of these Tudor people, uh, no, so little Elizabethan people, uh, wanted to employ castration of Irish males as a policy. I thought, like, I've never, I've never heard that one before so like there, there's more there uh, but the, the general point about it is about the representation of the that, that i like is the representation of the irish in order to justify such horrific things as castrating all males in ireland you know what leads you coming as you claim to be from from a civilized country where the rule of law the rule of common law is intact and and run and and is at the base of everything that you do in your country what would lead you to treat other people or consider treating other people like that? Now, that to me is really interesting because at the same time, they were struggling with how we're going to justify uh, dealing with Amer you know, Native Americans, Amerindians at the, uh, at the, in the same way. The difference sort of is that for a slight period, the uh, indigenous people of North America had a wee bit of grace period, as it were, where they were seen as noble savages, which I don't think the Elizabethans ever saw the Irish as. So there were there were differences between the two. So there's a lot in there, but what are these differences? What are the connections? What is it they learned from the Spanish, for example? Because uh, so, some of the key military people in Ireland were very, very aware of what the Spanish were doing in, in, in South America and, and wanted to take the best of what the Spanish were doing and, and avoid the worst of what they were doing. So there's all these connections of how these different situations all reach the same end, but through different sorts of combinations of, 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 of um, combinations of representation of the people, of the, the people that they were, that they were othering, that they were conquering. I'd, I'd like to do more on that and I might do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd add is I think there's, there's something very interesting about the, the uh, the confluence of, of of modernity or early modernity and uh, and colonialism, which you know it, it tends to be left out of 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 of, of modern analysis of, of what modernity was about. You know, it's all enlightenment thought and Whig history and all the rest of it. But you know, some of the the, the, the key figures who were who, who who are still you know important in in, in social uh, science as well as just regarded as. Uh, as 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 thinkers from that period, you know, people like Francis Bacon and and, and William Petty were 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 mm -hmm. up to their eyes in the in the colonial process. I mean, they were they, they were they were deeply embedded in that process, and a lot of that thinking, I, I think, comes out of 
uh, out of their their involvement in uh, in colonialism, particularly in uh, in Ireland, but in other places as well. You know, people like Raleigh and all the rest of it. So it's that, uh, 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 you know, if you read it backwards, that would it would usually be expected to be a, a total separation between Enlightenment thought uh, and and progressive thought and the colonial process. But in fact, if you look at the people who, who came out of it, like like I say, people like Petty, the, the the two things go hand in hand. And you know, we're beginning to deconstruct some of that. I think is still part of the work that we have to do, not just in Ireland, but in in, in, in the rest of the world as well. And part of the the, the challenge of BLM that I that I talked about before is to begin to you know to address some of those shibboleths as well, some of those truths that are taken to, to, to be kind of uh, uncontestable, if you like, now, and, and go, well, no, there are, there are different ways of thinking about this. And, and the fact that these people were, were so involved in the colonial process suggests that maybe you shouldn't take everything they said as, uh, as, as uh, inviolable truth or, 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 or take it for granted. Or an, another one to add to that, Robbie, is t- take such an important Western philosopher as Locke, yeah. I mean, Locke, Locke perfected his philosophy, his philosophizing, while while basically setting up colonies in Carolina, mm. uh, and and it 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 really did affect the way he 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 viewed the nature of humanity and the nature of civilization and civility and all these other things. Yeah, yeah it would be it would be a really rich subject for a follow up study. It sounds like just just a personal note. We'll probably cut it out, but um, I spent a bit of time reading the sixteen forty one depositions yeah. because they've been digitized by Trinity and they're all up online. And you could just pick a random page in that document to find a tremendously evocative. Oh, this is like this is where it's starting. Yeah. You know, you can see it start to begin here. It's really fascinating. Um, okay, so moving on to maybe a more modern terrain and Irish colonialism in, um, in not too long outside of living memory. One of the outcomes of the Anglo-Irish Treaty after the War of Independence was the creation of two synthetic statelets on the island of Ireland and the carving out of six counties in the northeasterly corner, just to skim over a lot of history. Mm-hmm. How did the Irish state develop over time and what continuity can we see in the so-called good relations state of today? Well, maybe, maybe start at the beginning because I mean, I already traced that sense of a of a tension or a dialectic, if you like, in Irish history between administrative colonialism and, 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 and settler colonialism and plantation. And the, the striking thing about partition and particularly with the state that emerged in the, in the six counties is you see it as a reinstatement uh, of, 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 of uh, very traditional uh, colonial relations. I mean, you know, if you look at Irish history through the 19th century, certain from, certainly from Angorda Moore on, it's basically a process of 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 liberalisation, whereby for the first time Catholics do begin to find a, a, a place in, within the state and about the state. You know, uh, majority of the the the, the uh, RIC become uh, become Catholic. Catholics get are, are in Parliament. Catholics are now part of the civil service. So a, a, a gradual and far from from far from perfect, but a gradual process of opening up to a, a new form of inclusive administrative colonialism, which which allows Catholics or, or, or natives to, 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 to be part of the, uh, the state and the process of, of government. Now that in the six counties ends, you know, very abruptly with partition, because then you have this return to an older form of, of state, uh, you know, something which the which the prime minister of the state characterized as a Protestant state for Protestant people. It is, it is something based on uh, old notions of Protestant ascendancy. It's a, a state which really uh, is effectively saying that Catholics have no place within the state, have no positive role to play within the state. So, you know, it's not surprising that that was, that, that, that moment was so dramatic for Northern Catholics. And I think, uh, you know, there's, you're beginning to see a, a debate opening up a wee bit in the South around that, that following some of the stuff that Joe Raleigh and others have said on it, but you, you can't, it's very hard to imagine just how stark that transformation was for for Catholics based in the North because they'd seen, you know, nearly a hundred years of, of of an improvement and a movement towards a form of equality within the state, and then suddenly they're back to square one in, in terms of an exclusive sectarian Protestant state, um, uh, and you know that 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 really exists is is able to reproduce itself. Um, for 50 years and uh, until 1972, when it when it collapses in the face of uh, a, a civil rights organisation, but it's a uh, it, it's 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 still looking back on it quite remarkable how 
how so reactionary and so explicitly colonial affirmation was able to exist within the within the UK state, you know, a formerly democratic state. And I think, you know, one of the things you get out of the book is that sense of of just how how shocking uh, a, a state formation that was. Um, and, uh, and and how shocking it was that it was able to exist for as, for as long as it did. And of course, it collapsed at a formal level in 1972, but it didn't it didn't die overnight. Uh, so much of what it had set in place as structures were still there, yeah. governing <laughs> what was going on. And so the task that was facing uh, people here and facing British administrators was to try to how to put it, drag this entity squealing and kicking into some sort of modern liberal egalitarian state, you know? Uh, and so different things had been tried at that, different political approaches, different policy approaches, uh, different ideological approaches. And, and the culmination of, of it all eventually is the, the, the good relation state. Uh, the notion that, you know, um, there should be respect for either side, and that there should be none of this sectarianism, none of this um, majoritarianism either, that, you know, maybe the prime example of it in a, in a formal sense is how the, the Good Friday Agreement sets up the political arrangements whereby, you know, there, there's, there's weighted, uh, weighted um, considerations about who gets to get what post. There's, uh, you, you can't have just a majority vote to pass anything of substance and so on and so on. So, so the good relations state is, is the, is the final to date stage of trying to, how to put it, sweep up the vestiges of that hyper sectarian state that was put in place with partition. And, and I mean, just to, to, to add to that a wee bit, just in case people don't know that, that, that uh, one of our arguments is that, that it would be silly to suggest that nothing has changed in the North. You know, the, the Northern state has been transformed in that process. You know, one of the, the things we, we, we pick up on is that, you know, the, 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 the early days of the Orange State were defined by a minister for justice who was who proudly boasted that there wasn't a Catholic about the place, so that Catholics could not get a job in anywhere inside the, the civil service. You know, for, for a number of years now, Catholics have been a majority in the civil service in the, in, in the six counties. Now, partly that's accounted for by the fact that there's been a, a demographic transition so that you know, Catholics are, if they're not in the majority among the, the, the people of working uh, age, they're very close to it now. So the demographic transition explains that a wee bit. But at the same time, the state also had to reinvent itself as a space in, in which Catholics could work and, and, and have, have, uh, have, have some sense of belonging. I feel like that's part of the ideology of good relations is to say that uh, the, the days of a Protestant state for a Protestant people uh, ha, have been firmly consigned to history and we're trying to do something else with the state. Now, of course, whether that's been achieved is, is, is a moot point, but it would be uh, it would be wrong not to acknowledge that the, 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 the state formation that we're dealing with now is, is very different to the one that collapsed in, in 1972 and was established in, uh, in 1920 with partition. That said, we're not fans of good relations. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's a dangerous position to, to, to have only a soundbite about because it seems that you're against goodness and niceness and civilization and all things positive, you know? Uh, and, and I suppose I, I was not going to necessarily all that deeply, but one way in which I would start to explain to somebody who doesn't know why anybody would be against good relations uh, as, as, a, as a way to run a state is to say, I remember my, my children went to an integrated school here. Only about 7% only about of kids go to integrated schools. Uh, and that's another story as to why it's so small. But anyway, uh, a, a, a colleague, a friend of mine, his kid was at the same school. And I remember him saying to me how great a school it was because his wee boy had Catholic friends and Protestant friends in the class, and he didn't know which was which. And I thought, no, that's not right. I want my kid to know which is which, and that not be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want them. I want them to know about history. I want them to know about politics. I don't want to have something that's built on, you know, let's pretend. Yeah, and I mean the other the other obvious example which we mentioned already is that the thing that started us in the whole journey was was a good relations approach to the plantation in the north. It was this: yeah, the, yeah. if that is if that is 
the, the history of half the population, then therefore it has it's something that has to be celebrated. And it's not too much of a, a stretch to say it's it's not that different from saying, well, if 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 part of your tradition in South Africa was to, to have apartheid, then we should celebrate that on your behalf. And if part of your tradition in the in North America was to uh, was, was to genocide Native Americans, then uh, we should celebrate that too. It's a it's a it's an approach which removes politics from any reading of history. It just as about regards cultural identity is sufficient uh, to to justify merit whenever it clearly isn't. So from you know from our point of view, if you're if you're trying to understand the complex reality and legacy of of the colonial process in Ireland. The last thing you want to do is start off by going that everybody was the same in that process, and we should celebrate every uh, every politics was involved in that process. Because clearly, if you have anything approaching a, an anti-colonial anti-reading, you cannot do that. You have to see one side as 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 more problematic than the other. Of course, some Native Americans uh, have have rejected that celebration. You know, Columbus Day and everything. Yeah. We, we talked about this before the T-shirt. What is it? fighting terrorism since 1492 or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, the, the thing about that is that when, when you become the one that doesn't accept the paradigm, you're the one that looks like the problem, right? It's these recalcitrant Native Americans who just don't want to go with the, along with the celebration. But yet the, the point is just so obvious. If you think about it, why would they celebrate their disenfranchisement? Why, should, why would they celebrate their being conquered? Why would they celebrate that possibly 80 million Native Indigenous Americans on that on those two continents mm. died in the process of conquest. You know what is there to celebrate there? So, so the parallel then is to here to say that some things should not be celebrated. Some things or should should not there should not be a demand for equal celebration. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think that's all spot on. And in terms of obscuring that history or depoliticizing it, I think is is a big part of normalizing the direction of travel. Part of that that's touched on in the book is tracing the development of the 26 counties from a state of anti-colonial resistance to partial incorporation into the project of empire and white and Western nationhood, as you outline in the book. And I think following this mixed and contradictory history is crucial in understanding the kind of intermediate state that Ireland finds itself in today, which I think flares up and you can see that tension between a political establishment, which would like to further incorporate Ireland into the EU or NATO and a tradition of solidarity with the oppressed, which still manifests itself in support for Palestine uh, and the like. So uh, a question which is, again, broad, unfortunately, but how do you think of Ireland's place in the world today, that intermediate position? What is the roots of that and, and where is that developing to? Well, I, I mean, I would start with that that, that, that that position that the 26 county state was given by given by Empire, given by the, the UK state. It, it was very consciously one of being constructed as a white dominion. And we, we use that term not provocatively, but because it accurately describes what Empire thought the 26 county state was meant to do, and which certainly uh, part of the political establishment, the 26 county state also thought it was meant to do as well. It was giving up the commitment to uh, separation. It was giving up the, the, the commitment to republic and was accepting that white dominion status had uh, many different attractions. Now, the, the striking thing about that is that I think really for the first time, whiteness features in, 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 in Irish political identity. Uh, and it's and it's thrust upon Irish people. It's not it's not a choice that either uh, either party to the to the, the the civil war in Ireland chose. But uh, once partition happens, it's uh, the the role that this new state is meant to assume is quite clearly one of a white dominion. So it's not meant to look like um, uh, an anti-imperialist state. It's meant to look like Canada, New Zealand, Newfoundland, and Crucially for us, I think South Africa, and that, and there's the rub is whenever you realise that South Africa at that time was presented as one of the uh, the, the white dominions, shows you what white dominion status was really about. Because clearly, South Africa had a black majority, but white dominion didn't mean democracy. It meant who controls power within these dominions. So it's it's the white settler bloc who will continue to to uh, operate control power in a, in a, in a usually in a, a very conservative and uh, 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 and reformist way. So in that sense, the, the model of the state still obtains. We, of course, we know that things change over time and Ireland you know, limps towards uh, decoration of, of a republic in 1949. But the one thing is quite clear that 
that the, the, the status it finally gets as a republic is completely different to the one that was envisaged uh, in, in, in 1916 and then democratically sanctioned by the Irish electorate in the, the 1918 election. So that the, the tension between the promise of uh, the, the, the summer that was supposed to come in, uh, after uh, 1918 and the reality of the, the Irish state is, is so stark that it, it continues to, to structure the way that uh, the, 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 the Irish people think about their, their, their place in the world today. Uh, and I mean, just to follow that up in terms of what you're saying about contemporary Ireland, I think you're you're spot on in terms of the tension now between the Irish establishment, if you like, and this particularly frightening um, commitment to to to, uh, to get closer and closer to NATO, which is you know quite shocking to me, given that you know the the the, the popular resistance to that that has been expressed over the, over the years. Um, but but you're also right to see it as a as a political tension. You know, it's a I suppose the other point that that, that, that comes out of the, the the comparative work that we do in the book is that you know none of no no state that comes out of uh, anti-imperialist struggle anti-colonial struggle is is ever perfect you know if you look around the world at the minute you know India which used to be a, a, a great model for for many people or or even uh, democratic South Africa you know they all have profound contradictions with your legacies of colonialism and they're 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 far from perfect states so that that political tension within states after they after they free themselves from from a, a direct colonial link is 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 a is effectively a universal one and it's an issue that's resolved by politics not 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 through identity so just being Irish doesn't make us either imperialist or anti-imperialist it's a, a political choice that we make and at the minute sadly I think our political establishment is making the wrong choice in terms of this drift towards NATO but that doesn't mean that Irish people either north or south of the border have to make that choice and I hope we will resist it. And it's interesting of course that here in here in the north we, we were we were umbilically linked to uh, one of the imperial inventors of, of, of whiteness you know so uh, if, if there was a tension in the south it was a much less obvious tension in the north we were we were part of the uk and went along with all the well we're, we're policy wise etc we're just linked to to the uk the interest one of the interesting things for me is that you know this debate about reunification and, and people said over and over again and it it's sort of obvious but if you try unpacking it your your, your mind goes into a fuddle which is to say you know it's not just a matter of sticking these two bits together again and calling it a country uh, because everything has to be looked at. And to me, one of the things that's, that's going to be really interesting to look at is this question of, of, the, of the radical decolonial push in Irish society, where, where, where those of us in the North who might feel that way will have some sort of forum in which to voice those aspirations, which you don't have to the same extent working through the UK. I mean, for example, NATO exists in the north. Uh, it, you know, parts of NATO's listening shield for Northwest Europe is is, is spread across uh, the north of Ireland. So, like, what happens that in reunification? You know, do do we say it's going to be like the treaty ports, and we'll 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 have to hold on to them for some time, or do we say no? The, the new Ireland is going to be non-aligned. It's going to be neutral, and it's going to turn its face towards towards the the majority world. And not towards the white minority world. That that's that's a big question, which is, I suppose, scary for some people. But I find it very fascinating that we might be in a in a position where we're able to discuss that, debate that, and come up with some decent outcome. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, and the other bit of that, which is which is pretty stark now, is that obviously uh, a lot of people in the in the six counties are. Are, are keen for reunification precisely because it'll get them back into the EU. But I think you know our mm. our, our analysis is is it, is at least that you have to be you have to be aware of the the the, the colonial legacy that Im, embeds itself in the uh, in the EU as well. Like and that that that's not necessarily an argument for for a for a, a reunified Ireland to be outside the EU, but it is for a, a reunified Ireland to play a much more um, proactive and aggressive role in saying that the EU has to address its, uh, you know, its, its, its the continuing legacies of colonialism which it carries with it. You know, all those scattered uh, colonies, ex-colonies around the world that are, are are now flying the EU flag because they were once Dutch colonies or or French colonies or or or, or whatever. You know, that that so that, that 
I think you know one of the core points of by the book is all these things are questions of politics, not identity, and and certainly one of the one of the inspiring things I think about the opening up of this debate around reunification is that all of this stuff is on the table, and we should be thinking about the implications of all of this, of for neutrality, for the EU, and all the rest of it, and uh, as part of the as part of the process of thinking about how we re- reunify the country. You touched on there the the question of identity, and that is something that is dealt with in the book and obviously looms large in an Irish context. You outlined the idea of mixedness, which is a very good means of squaring the circle between often counterposed categorizations like planter and gale, empire and republic, Protestant Catholic, uh, terms and debates which have only become, I think, more fraught since the book's publication. And I was wondering if you could just outline the thinking behind that, that and, and I suppose the subsequent reaction to it. Well, mixedness, uh, the term we use is mistidache which is a Latin American term. And it, it, it has a certain history, which I'll just for, briefly say that it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily a very uh, positive or liberating term in a, in a South American particular context. Uh, what you find is that you'll have some countries who under pressure in the, in the 20th century for being benighted and less developed because they weren't white, started to argue, well, well we're not black either. You know, we're mixed. Uh, where and and and, and that the the sort of promise in the notion of mestizaje for right wing forces in Latin America was to say we're on our way to whiteness if you know what I mean. So we're not needless to say we're not using the term like that at all, but we're using it just in this sense that it is true that a lot of populations in in Latin American countries, some more than others, are genuinely mixed of of of, of settlers descendants of settlers and descendants of colonists. And what we're doing is then taking that concept symbolic just at a descriptive level, uh, to begin with, just at a descriptive level, that works for us. <clears throat> and the example I love to think of is a lot of years ago, Padre Snowdy did this little pamphlet called Hidden Ulster. And, and he's talking about something like that. He doesn't use the mistidache, but he's talking about that mixedness that goes on. And he, he points out this incredible... Uh, situation where when the first IRA truce broke down in 1972, the leader of the Republicans in Lenadoon was a guy called Ivor Bell. And the leader of the UDA in uh, Suffolk was a guy called Patrick Murphy. So he's saying like, you know, like something's gone on there somewhere <laughs> that explains that these people are ending up with the wrong names, if you know what I mean. So, so just at a descriptive level, we are mixed. We're all mixed, right? But what we're making of that is to say then that your where you stand politically is not a matter of birth, is not a matter of genes, is not a matter of biology. It's a matter of choice, and the choice we're arguing, as has always been on this island, is: Do you stand for empire? Or do you stand with empire, or do you stand with the republic? That's the choice, and you don't have to be some sort of, I, I don't know if such a person exists, but some sort, sort of pure descendant of a displaced Gael, nor some pure unadulterated uh, uh, descendant of a settler to make your choice. You can make the choice no matter where you're coming from. So mixedness, mistizaki, is actually a very liberating uh, place to be. It's saying, that we are not determined. We decide. Each of us can decide. Yeah, and I mean, just to maybe to help your your listeners understand it, I Bill Bill brought me to the concept, and I had to struggle with a week with with it a wee bit at the start. And I and I guess the point where I began to understand what we were trying to do was when when I compared it to the the notion of miscegenation, which is, you know is the the racist term against race mixing. You know, you had, it's the, the the race laws that you had in in uh, the southern states of, of America and part of South Africa and lots of other places actually across uh, different empires. So the the notion that race mixing is a really bad thing. I think when you turn that on its head, what you find is that. You know, sometimes the, the mixing happen, happens naturally because people love each other or they sleep with each other. You know, it just it just happens a lot. Sometimes it happens through acts of brutality. Uh, you know, uh, uh, has happened in, in in the states as well through you know sexual violence. So it's it, it, it's something which is whether it's not to be welcomed, it is inevitable consequences consequence of the juxtaposition of different racial groups in the in in the in the, in the context, context of the the colonial process. And anywhere you look at a 
uh, uh, somewhere where colonialism happened, you'll find these groups of people are in between. So, you know, what political sense you make of that is is, is obviously up to different people to, to to decide in different contexts. And, you know, there are very different ideas around it in indigeneity and, and ideas like that, which which would at least challenge the notion that mixing is always should always be celebrated or should always be seen as a, as a good thing. But for us in the Irish context, I think the the, the, the start of understanding this that the, the the political sense that we make make of it is the United Irish Movement. And what's most singularly important about that is that there you have a, a genuinely progressive, modern, anti-imperialist movement, which is which is led at, at least in part by people who come out of that. Uh, settler colonial experience, you know, Ulster Presbyterians and uh, and and more generally uh, Protestants across the, the island, and, including Wolf Tonovasti himself. So there's something really important uh, about that model because it's a, a, a an anti-colonial and anti-imperialist model that actually genuinely from the start envisages a a new society which transcends those racial constructs which have been imposed by colonialism, it, 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 it you know, very explicitly imagines a form of Irishness which can transcend uh, categories which have been uh, imposed by the colonial process. So in the Irish context, and we think also, at least by application in other places, that, that the, the, the political sense that you draw from that is exactly what Bill was saying, you know, that the, the, the choices you make are political choices and whatever your ethnic or racial background, uh, the, the political choices should be made, made on, a, on, on your politics, not on your, not on your identity. So, so it's, it's, a, it's an anti-essentialist stand, Absolutely. basically. Yeah. You know? I know I, Rob, Robbie sometimes, he's probably sick of hearing me saying this, but the, the one way that it, it comes home to me was I, I remember being in South Africa a few years ago and discovering that uh, I think it was the PAC, one of the one of the smaller liberation groups there. They they had a slogan which was "One settler, one bullet," and I began thinking about that when we were doing this book in terms of myself because I've got a good Protestant name, in fact, good Protestant two names, four name and family name, and that's because uh, an ancestor let let his kids be raised Catholics and thereby, thereby it all. It all unraveled that way. But what I'm saying is that, you know, if you take that PAC thing uh, seriously as an essentialist statement, where do I stand? Do I get a gun because I'm descended in part from settlers or do I get a bullet because I'm descended in part from natives? So it's, it's, a, it's a useless, essentialism is useless politically. That's the point. That's what we're trying to get at. Towards the end of the book, you both outlined something like a political horizon for anti-colonial politics from a tactical perspective. And the, the word you use for this in the phrase is the Parnellite <laughs> front. Um, first of, so first of all, you might provide uh, an outline of the conjuncture that Parnellism worked within, uh, first of all, maybe the new departure and the, the gap that was bridged there and what it is about the present moment that... Um, Makes it relevant in the context of the United Ireland. Well, did we call it that? Did we call it that, Robbie? I think we did. Yeah, I think I, think I might have to. I'm a, I've I, suppressed I, that. Then, obviously, I'm so, a, I have to take this one. But I think <laughs> I, I think we put that in the context of traditions of, of anti-imperialist struggle, if you like, in Ireland. The, the the first is the insurrectionary one, which you know goes certainly back to the United Irish Movement and and before that. Uh, then you have one of uh, you know really stemming from O'Connell onwards of of uh, Parliamentary reformism, which you know sometimes can be quite conservative and sometimes is is, is very radical, and then you have the the the, the mass action uh, of the land league. And what was striking about that the, the 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 new departure period is that for for almost the first time in Irish history, you see see those three strands actually working in conjunction, you know, where the, 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 the Fenians are recognizing that maybe he's right when they when he suggests sometimes that revolutionary violence is not going to help the, the ultimate cause of, of, of where everybody's trying to get. Uh, uh, and, uh, and yet at the same time, you have, you know, the Land, land League forcing a quite conservative uh, 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 middle class um, parliamentary movement into into very radical positions in terms of land reform and all the rest of it. So, it, you know that that it, it's that notion that all these movements are are important in themselves and also have to find a way 
to work together, which I think is important. And you know that challenge is 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 is, is just as real in the, in the in the current situation as it as it, as it was then. Um, so I suppose that that but the lesson is that it's it, it's hard to do, and it's very easy to split it up. So that people have to work very hard to to try and build that that kind of consensus. And they have to recognise also, I think that people people come to that position from from very different places. I mean, one of the one of the difficulties we've had in in uh, in progressive or radical or revolutionary politics in the early years is just how you know people have great positions, but they're not very good at working with, with other people who've who have, who have tiny tiny differences with those positions. And and you know part of part of what I take out of out of Parnell is that there comes a moment where you know the the the, the promise of history is more important than the, the than your than the, the the purity of your ideological position, and I think we're certainly at that moment now. You know, where wherever all of us will have to, you know, as we said before, we're we're talking about big questions like neutrality, like uh, our position in the EU, and all the rest of it. All those things are on the table in the process of uh, of, of this dis discussion around reunification. Of course, people who like us come from the the particular reading of of, of Irish history that we have. We'll hope that the New Ireland looks something like the, 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 the promise that we, we, we think it had in, in 1916 to 18, but it, it may also take very different forms. We have to be prepared to accept that as well. But, they, but they, the, the core idea is that, is that all, of those, all of those different tendencies and traditions within anti Irish anti imperialism and anti colonialism are really. Are really significant and important and they all have to recognize that the other the other has played a part was that nothing to be added perfect yeah no that was great <laughs> i didn't mean to ambush you with the name of the whole tactical strategy that you provided at the end but i was interested in digging into it okay well then maybe something in the way of a conclusion um this book has come out and it's been written up and it's been engaged with in various different places I'd be interested to hear if you, if either of you, both of you had some kind of a perspective on the book's reception, maybe some of the criticism or uh, lack of criticism that's received and your, your reflections on, on either of those things. I, I, I think in general terms, now this is, God, this is tempting fit. Um, you know, like saying, God, it hasn't rained for days and then it starts raining. Um, I, I've been surprised that we, we've got relatively little aggro. Uh, I expected more. No, that could mean one of two things. That could mean that we've been so powerful in our arguments that we've silenced any sort of opposition, or it could mean that the opposition thinks we're not worth it. <laughs> I don't know what it means exactly, but uh, I've been I've been sort of surprised by that. Uh, but when I think about it more, go, going back to where we started this discussion, I think that actually why it has got less criticism than you might have imagined is that my imagination was based on when we started writing the thing and not on when it came out mm -hmm. if you know what I mean so in other words that that change that has happened to to the world and that change that has happened to Ireland in the last relatively few years means that we were we were launching the book into a very calm sea as it were you know we're into, into welcoming a, a welcoming sort of place and 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 so it has been just really really uplifting to see the way in which so many people and from different walks of life uh some surprising people have contacted me and said loved your book and i thought flip i never thought you'd read a book like that <laughs> and, and you know unexpected places fair enough but some surprising places too and robbie said about its international effect now like this is not a you know this is not a bestseller or whatever uh, globally speaking but we do sell regularly quite a lot of copies into the US. And to me, that is interesting. And I think to repeat what I said earlier, it's because people are making connections to Ireland that they either never thought of making before when they're looking at things like black studies or, or, or uh, liberation uh, arguments. Uh, they've either not thought of Ireland in that context or they've thought of Ireland and dismissed Ireland because of some Irish Americans they've known or whatever. So if if I'm right on that, then I'm really, really pleased that that's one of the impacts that it's had. No, I, I would completely agree with that, and I think I mean I, I'm I'm a bit surprised as well. I think I think one of the I think the, the first thing which has been really pleasing for us is is the number of younger people, like young activists, 
you know, inside Ireland, but particularly outside of Ireland, who take something away from it. And I, I wasn't necessarily expecting that, that to work at all. I mean, in some ways, you know, I, I, if I was trying to critique my own work, I might have said, uh, you know, it, it'll be too nationalist, it's too Irish for people to see the, 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 mm. the internationalism that hopefully is embedded in it. But that hasn't been the case. And I'm very, very pleased that that, that, that hasn't been the case. You know, they, they, they have been keen to make the links and, and draw something positive out of that. They, we've already talked about the the way that we tentatively developed the use of Mr. Uh, Yahi, and that people do pick up on that. It's really striking how in very different situations people are going, oh yeah, well that chimed with me. And I think that you know there'll be a question about how uh, how how people do or, or or might use that in other contexts. But hopefully, at least the seed is planted in a way that uh, is is useful to people. But I mean, I I think the other time the other the other side of this in in, in terms of the the, the 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 lack of opposition or critiquing is that you know Bill is dead right that the, of course the the, the mood has changed post BLM and I think in that context it's actually very hard to you know it, 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 the, there used to be periodic interventions where you know people would write to journals making making the case for clonism or imperialism you know what what, what all the great work it had done around there it's 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 very difficult to do that stuff given the it's not just that the, the 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 academic debate has changed slightly in that context, but just the way that ordinary people have begun to discuss these issues around the world, you know, and that's and that's precisely why people don't want to have this debate in the public domain. I would, I think that's definitely true in terms of the British establishment. Um, you know, you, you can't really defend enslaving people. You can't really defend genocide. You can't really defend, you know. Just, and Gorta Moore and the, the policy of uh, starvation that he employed in the uh, in the 19th century in Ireland. So in that context, you know, an open kind of you know traditional academic discussion around these issues doesn't work. Your your best hope is that you just don't have the discussion. So in that <laughs> in, in that in that sense, I think you know it, it it falls into an environment where nobody really wants to defend. Uh, colonialism uh, even in the Irish context you know and, the, and the, it, it, it's it's interesting in terms of my reading of of where the Irish establishment is with with this is of course we've already talked about the kind of the 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 the, the, the movement towards NATO and all the all of the, the rest of that kind of current if you like in in in, in politics in, in 26 counties but it's a it's a politics that's that can't really deal with Irish history. You know, you can't draw anything from Irish history to make the case for joining NATO. I think, you know, if you, if you, as soon as you say, well, what was the last thing that NATO did? It was Afghanistan. You go, you kind of go, well, why would Irish people, given their history, want to be involved in the process of doing the next Afghanistan? It just doesn't work. So, in, in that sense, it's, I mean, in, in some ways, it's kind of sad, I think, because I think, I always think that, you know, open democratic debate is a, is a good thing even when people are holding positions that are that, that are that are pretty reactionary and uh, and offensive you know it's better to, to have a discussion not have a discussion but i think in the in the current context you'd be very you'd be hard pushed to find somebody to stand up and say that imperialism and colonialism was good for ireland or or anywhere else in the world and in that context you know it is difficult to to take on about which at the end of the day for all the, that it's it, it's theorized and 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 you know makes an ideological intervention is based on solid fact. I mean, we we're, the, the research is solid. It's it, it believes that what it's presenting to you is truth, not propaganda. And I think that it's it's very difficult to do the same thing if you're trying to support imperialism or colonialism. Yeah, I think something that the book really hammers in on that I think is is correct, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is just the effect that movements and big events can have on consciousness and i think the point that you made there in terms of black lives matter and different uh, upsurges you really see the change in, in people's thought and i just think that that's like a, a really important yeah. thing oh. it, it really overcomes the kind of pessimism that people take on in terms of uh, you know nothing will change but things change very quickly um but before we finish you might just let listeners know if they've had any interest in reading the book and i'm sure many have where they can find it and if uh, you want to plug any upcoming projects you have absolutely go ahead well, the easiest way is to get online and order it from the publisher, beyondthepalebooks.com. And uh, you can also see what other books the publisher do uh, does, and maybe you'd like them as well. 
Fantastic, yeah, and I'll um, leave a link in the episode description so people can find that there. I think this has been a very enjoyable overview of some parts of the book, um, but there's obviously not, we can't cover everything in an hour, um, so if people want to dig deeper, I'd encourage listeners to, to pick up the book, it's a great read. And for now, I'll just say thanks to Chris for joining me, and a massive thanks to both Robbie and Bill for taking the time to sit down with us. Cheers, lads. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks, Chris. It was yeah, enjoyable. Uh, I wasn't planning anything else for Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were quicker than Cosmo <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's still the pub is still open. <laughs> hey, hey, guys. Man, man. I'm work. Hey, 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 I